Let's open in the Word of God this evening to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the great chapter in the Bible on the church as the body of Jesus Christ. A beautiful, positive setting forth of this marvelous truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren... I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto those dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all, or to profit the whole. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet, show I unto you a more excellent way. With that passage in mind, we consider tonight in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 21, question and answer 55. In the Apostles' Creed, I believe, the communion of saints. Question 55 on page 12, what do you understand by the communion of saints? Two things. First, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of him and all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. One of the beautiful truths that is expressed in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we'll come to next week, is this truth, the truth of the communion of the saints. That's the truth that the Apostle sets forth in 1 Corinthians 12, and we didn't read it, but the context of this is the Lord's Supper and preparation for the Lord's Supper. There's division in the church at Corinth. That's a division over spiritual gifts. That comes out in the chapter that we read now concerning spiritual gifts, verse 1. And then again in verse 28, God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. He's talking about spiritual gifts that God has given in the church to different members. And there was division in the church because there were certain gifts that were more prominent and everybody wanted them. And everybody wanted in Corinth that place of prominence. And the apostle sets before them here in this chapter this beautiful illustration of the body and the different members and says even this, that the less obvious members and the uncomely members, the feeble members, those are the ones that are necessary, essential, and covet earnestly not those spiritual gifts, but the best gifts that are common to all, faith, hope, and love. So there's division in the church at Corinth over gifts, but there was also a division in the church at Corinth in regard to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And that's in the previous verses at the end of chapter 11. You see that in verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. And then he continues in verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And what he's saying there is, 
You do come together for the Lord's Supper, but it's not worthy of being called the Lord's Supper the way that you are divided as you come to the sacrament. What was that division? It was a division, especially between the rich and the poor. Instead of the sacrament being an expression of the church's unity in Corinth, it caused division in the church. So he says in verse 21 of chapter 11, In eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. And he says, What have ye not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them which have not? This is what was happening. The wealthy in the church at Corinth were bringing large portions. The poor there had nothing, and the wealthy didn't share. And the Lord's Supper became a divisive act in the church. They despised the poor. And so he says, you can't call this the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 30, this is why God is chastening you. This is why even some of you have died. And he says, come to the Lord's Supper with preparation. Let a man examine himself. And so let him come. It's necessary to examine ourselves with regard to the truth and the practice of the communion of the saints as we come to the sacrament. And that's the purpose of the sermon tonight, that we examine ourselves, especially in light of the words in the catechism, the second part, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and the salvation of the other members. That's what we want to examine in this week. And really, what's expressed here is the same selfless love that we talked about in the family this morning, now in the family of God. Selfless love that reflects this, that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And that's what the sacrament will show us too. So let's consider tonight the communion of saints. Notice first a wonderful reality, and then second, a joyful calling. The communion of saints. First, a wonderful reality. I want to begin by defining the terms that are used in the Apostles' Creed. Communion of saints. What does the word communion use? Well, we use this word to refer to the sacrament. But here, it doesn't refer to the sacrament of communion, but to the reality that there is Christian fellowship. That there is, between Christians, a sharing of thoughts, of feelings, on a spiritual level. And that's set before us in the Apostles' Creed, and here in the Catechism, not as something that we do, but as something that is a reality, I believe, the communion of saints. Yes, there's a duty. We'll come to that in the second point. But first, we must see that this is a spiritual reality. A spiritual reality. Communion of saints. Saints here are not dead people who've departed and gone to heaven and lived some kind of perfect life and, and we're able to do miracles here on the earth, but saints refer to the living people that are in the church with you here and now. There's a communion, a unity 
that exists between believers in the church, a communion of saints, other true Christians. We share in and we have something in common, the life and the blessings of Jesus Christ. And that's foundational for our fellowship and our calling with one another. That's what's expressed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 throughout the chapter, but listen in verse 25, that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. No schism, no division, but a body in which all the members care equally for one another. There are four basic elements to this truth of the communion of the saints that we want to look at tonight. The first is this. The communion of the saints has this foundation that believers are in communion with Jesus Christ. We are united by faith to Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. That's where the communion of the saints starts. And that's what the apostle has in mind here in verse 12 when he says, The body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. The members are united to Christ. And there's one body in Jesus Christ. It's important for us to see that, to see this spiritual reality, to see tonight that we believe in this spiritual reality. It's important because often when this subject of the communion of the saints or the fellowship of believers come up, what you hear is complaints. And you'll hear those complaints from two different sides. On the one hand, you might hear these complaints from somebody who's very selfish in the church, and they say, I don't experience the communion of the saints. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. Now, that may be true, but sometimes that's a a very wrong perspective to have when we come to the communion of the saints from a practical point of view. It's not, what do I get from others? But here, what do I contribute? Readily and cheerfully to use my gift. So, There are complaints. You'll hear the complaints also from the other side, from a member who is a contributing member who pours themselves out into the life of the church and receives no recognition for it and says, what's the point? It's important for us tonight, as we think about the communion of the saints, to deal with our complaints by recognizing, first of all, that this is a reality, a spiritual reality, that you and I are members of Jesus Christ by the power of the work of the Holy Spirit. Believe it. This is not something that we create, but it's something that God has created in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that helps us to see things differently. That helps us to see the other members of the body differently. That helps us to see our place in the body and our role in the body differently. It's similar, I suppose, to Christian marriage and living in Christian marriage. In Christian marriage, your spouse isn't always going to be everything that you expect or want them to be. You're going to find out that your spouse and you are very different to each other. 
But there is a union that you have. Because God has united you together in marriage. And so, regardless of the differences you have to one another, you must, especially as believing husband and wife, see each other, first of all, in the Lord. You are heirs together of the grace of life. And your marriage must reflect the, the marriage relationship of Christ to his church. And you're not in marriage, first of all, to get what you want out of it from your spouse or to make them happy. But together you are in marriage, first of all, to bring glory to God in the reality of Christian marriage. Well, it's exactly like that in the church. We must start not with our differences, not with what satisfaction we do or don't get from the body, but with this before our minds, that we are one body in Jesus Christ, by one Spirit, all baptized into one body. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, that on account of our union to Christ, all of us, each of us, are partakers of the life and blessing of Jesus Christ. That is, of the Holy Spirit and all the blessings that Jesus has earned for us on the cross, which now he imparts to us. And that's here in verse 13. By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, and we've all been made to drink into one Spirit. Now think of what Psalm 23 says, My cup runneth over. We've all been made to drink into one spirit. There is this overflowing, this abundance of blessing that comes to us on account of our being in union with Jesus Christ. What's important for us to see here is that this is an altogether different kind of fellowship than anything that you'll find, and anything that you'll have here on earth between men. This is not a man-made fellowship. This is not a group or a club or people that have a common interest who come together. This is not a political party or a labor union, but this is spirit-made, God-ordained. These are people who have been brought together into the body, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and blessed with salvation through the baptism that they've received into the body of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And those are the biblical metaphors for the body. A body which has a head and many members. Or a vine with branches and all receive their life from the vine, which is Jesus Christ. Or even this in the scriptures, the picture of the cornerstone and then the building, the temple, and everyone built on that cornerstone, Jesus Christ, into a beautiful edifice, which is the temple, the dwelling place of the living God. So we receive the life of Christ, the blessings of the cross of Jesus Christ, and all the gifts. And that's the point here in 1 Corinthians 12. All the gifts that God sees as necessary for the spiritual health of the body. So first, we're united to Christ. Second, in that union with Christ, we are in common partakers of Christ and all his benefits. And then third, we share and we contribute with the gifts that we have received to the health of and the well-being of the other members of the body. 
we're going to get to the joyful calling. Here, it's important for us to recognize this as a fact. This is part of what we believe, that Christ has brought the church together in this place at this time as a body. He's done that all through history in different churches and congregations. He's done that with the entire body of Jesus Christ throughout history. He's gathered the church in such a way that He appoints into the church each of the members with their unique gifts for the health of the body as a whole. This is the reality. The reality is, and you see this here in 1 Corinthians 12, that we're all different. That we each have unique gifts. That we each have a special or unique place in the body. And that every member of the body is essential, necessary. Especially what 1 Corinthians 12 calls the feeble and the uncomely. They are the more necessary members of the body. Now think of the way that's put in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16. Same illustration as 1 Corinthians 12. From whom, that is from Jesus Christ, who is called in the previous verse the head, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted or, or knit together by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. A lot of old English clunky terms there. But this is what it's saying. God has joined every member of the body to every other member of the body. And in joining all those members together, each of those members supplies something for the spiritual health of the whole so that we may grow up together to Jesus Christ, our head, as a body. And now you think of your children growing. And if one of their legs isn't growing, you have a problem, right? And... Here it's saying that all the body grows together by each member supplying what God has given to that specific member. So we all have, we could say, one spiritual purpose together, and that is the growth of the body as a whole. Even though we're different, we all serve and we help each other to achieve that same goal, spiritual growth together up into Jesus Christ, our head. And, and here it's important for us to see something of the election of the church, that God, in electing the church, chose the specific members that would make up the church and put each of them in the body with their specific place. And this is how we can know our place in the body, too. It doesn't have to do, and this is the point in 1 Corinthians 12, with what gifts or what prominence we have in the body. But God has given every one. Every member, an important and a necessary place in the body. So look at verse 23. These members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon them we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. And the previous verse, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And the eye needs the hand, and the hand 
needs the foot, and one can't say to the other, you're different to me, so you don't belong, or I don't want you. I don't want to be joined to you in the body. No, God has chosen and put together all the different members in their place. And that's important for us to think about from the point of view of enjoying the diversity that there is in the church of Jesus Christ, not only in the local congregation, but more broadly with regard to the church of Jesus Christ, which is Catholic, gathered from all the nations of the earth in all of history. God brings into the church, and you see that here in Corinth, people of every class, the rich and the poor. God brings into the church people of every nation and tongue and tribe and race, and that's the beauty of the body. And that's something that we can experience in the local body when Christian visitors come to the congregation here or when a new family joins the congregation here. This is one of the the richest experiences from a personal point of view of my ministry. Growing up in one country, moving to another being in three or four different churches, pastoring in different churches, seeing coming into the church different members with different backgrounds and, and being able to, to go and make visits to other countries and preach the gospel there and, and commune with saints so different to ourselves, but one in faith. That's the beauty of the communion of the saints and the truth of election. And that's the makeup of the church of Jesus Christ. So we are united to Christ. We are partakers of the blessings of Jesus Christ. And we partake of gifts so that we can, in our unique place in the body, contribute to and enjoy the the diversity and the, the wholeness of the body. There's one more thing about the communion of the saints that we should keep in mind, and it's this, that there is a spiritual distinctiveness or separation between believers and unbelievers. We are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, that is, into the body of Jesus Christ. And in that we are made partakers of Jesus Christ and all His blessings. So that when we speak of this fellowship of believers, we refer to it as the communion of saints. And that, of course, is exclusive from this point of view, that it doesn't involve unbelievers, and it doesn't involve those who are not saints, unholy. And the Scriptures make that very clear. This is really the important truth of the antithesis and living in spiritual separation from the world. But listen now to these words from 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship, that's communion. If we say that we have communion with Him, that is with Jesus Christ, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. You see it's saying here, in the way of holiness, we have communion with each other. But if we walk in darkness, that is, if we walk with the world, if we walk in a way that's separate from fellowship with God, 
then we also do not have communion with one another. And so the scriptures teach this very plainly. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And again, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's because from a very clear, plain point of view, unbelievers do not share in the blessings of Jesus Christ. We could compare it again to marriage. One who walks in adultery violates the bond of marriage. So here, one who walks in darkness violates the communion of saints and the peace of the body. So that's the truth of the communion of the saints. We believe it. But there is also a calling. And the catechism sets that before us in the words that we want to to carry with us in this week in our preparation for the Lord's Supper. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and the salvation of the other members. We want to talk about how we do that in very practical ways. But before that, I want us to see how packed this phrase is with meaning. I do this in Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism students will know this, that before we begin to look at the lesson, we look at the words of the catechism itself. There's so much meaning here. There is a duty that we have when it comes to the communion of the saints. This is not just a reality, and it's not just something that just happens. Everyone must know it to be his duty. The Bible calls us to do something here, and certainly that's what the Apostle Paul is aiming at in 1 Corinthians 12 when he develops this beautiful picture of the body that's made up of many members. He's talking about how they should live with one another. That the cares of the other members should be their cares. That the joys of the other members should be their joys. That the gifts that they have should be used for the other members. This is our duty in the communion of the saints. We should know it to be our duty. We should know it to be our duty. That means this is something that we should be thinking about. This is something that we should be intentional about. This is something that should occupy our thinking as members of the church. This is something that we should learn to do. Know it to be his duty. Everyone should know it to be his duty. Everyone. You're not exempt. Not one of you. You have a gift. And you have a place. And you must use your gift and place. You have a duty in the body, to employ. That's another important word here. That means to to use our gifts, to put them to use for the benefit of the body as a whole. It's not enough to know that we have gifts, to know what those gifts are, but we must employ them, use them. Everyone must know it to be his duty readily 
and cheerfully. That is without compulsion. We're going to come back to that as we look at the practical applications here. And then there's a purpose in our doing this too, and that is to the advantage and the salvation of the other members. And here, there's two ways, as it were, that we love and that we serve the other members of the body to their advantage. That refers to their general welfare, the physical well-being of the other members of the body, care about the person, the individual. I use my gifts for that individual. And then their salvation, to their advantage and salvation. So that we're concerned for the physical well-being and the spiritual well-being of the other members. What are their struggles? How is their faith? What temptations do they face? What burdens do they bear? We're fellow pilgrims, and we bear one another's burdens. That everyone should know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts to the advantage and salvation of the other members. The other members. We're not in isolation. This is set before us very clearly, this idea in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And again, there's a, there's a, there's a wealth of words here in what's said. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Two things there especially. Consider one another. That is, be considerate. Think about others. Put yourself in their shoes. Walk a mile with them in their shoes. Consider one another. To provoke. That is, to stir up. To encourage. To love and good works. And we can only do that if... Hebrews 10, verse 25, we do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. We have to be together to know one another and to encourage one another. And when we come together here in verse 25, we exhort one another. Again, that's encouraging one another, but here it has the idea of correcting one another. Sometimes we need admonition, mutual admonition. And you see the, the, the number of one another phrases here in verses 24 and 25 as well. We put together one another in the church. We have to love one another, serve one another, provoke one another, exhort one another. And there's an urgency here. So much the more as you see the day approaching. You see the, the weight, the importance in Scripture of the calling that we have in the communion 
of the saints. Well, let's look at some specific applications of that, specific duties. How do we readily and cheerfully use our gifts to the advantage and salvation of others? And that begins with this, first, by active participation and contribution to the life of the local church. That includes membership in the church, of course. It includes church attendance. It includes staying around to commune, to talk with one another in the church. It includes forgiving one another in the church. It includes serving one another in the church. It includes participation in the different activities of the life of the church. And the point here is simply this, that we can only know the other members of the church if we make an effort to interact with them and to participate in the same life of the church with them. That's basic to the communion of the saints, that we know one another. And that we know one another also in this, that we in common worship the Lord together and come under his word together so that we can be built up together in the Christian faith. So first, active participation in the life of the local church. Second, closely connected to that, we take interest in the work and life of the local church. We take interest in the work and the life of the local church. We're not just there as a leech. We don't use the church like we would a buffet restaurant. We take what we can and move on. But we're interested in the church, the body, and the life of the church, the work of the church. And here, all the members of the church can assist the office bearers who carry much of this load. And that could start with something very basic like reading the bulletin. Here's the plan for the life of the congregation in this week. If you don't read it, you don't know the activities, you don't know the opportunities, you don't know the Bible studies, and you don't know the needs in the congregation. And then closely connected to that is be observant. What needs to be done in the church? There's a building There are chairs, there are tables, there are dishes, there are pamphlets. What needs to be done in the church? Every member of the church should take ownership of the church in little ways, by being available, by being ready. How can you know where you might be used and useful in the church if your gifts are not evident and if you have no interest? So take an interest in the life and the work of the local church. A third important way for us to readily and cheerfully use our gifts in the church is this, to prepare yourself for the meetings of the church. Prepare yourself for Bible studies so you can contribute. Prepare your children for catechisms so that the instruction resonates in their soul. Prepare yourself for worship. Read the text. Read a commentary. I remember when I was pastor at Trinity, there was a man there who used to read the three chapters of the triple knowledge before each 
Lord's Day of the Catechism was preached. And that meant for me that he had read more material than I could possibly fit into a sermon. But he was prepared for the meetings of the church. Prepare for fellowship, meeting other believers in the church. There's a church directory. Did you ever pray through the church directory for the different members of the church? Do you know what to pray for the different members of the church? Do you talk to the other members of the church so that you can know what to pray for them? That kind of preparation for meeting with other saints leads to intentional fellowship at a deeper level where you can serve, use your gifts readily. A fourth way that we readily use our gifts for the church is by punctuality. Punctuality. Being on time for church. This is important. It shows that's important to you. This encourages other members of the church. This is a part of our preparation for worship. This is an important event, we're saying by that, in our life. And so we have to plan for that, don't we? Plan ahead for that. Probably especially on Sunday mornings, maybe also on Sunday afternoons when people are napping. Think ahead so that we're not scurrying and scrapping before we come to worship. Give ourselves the time. Prepare. Be punctual. Another way that we readily use our gifts in the church is by hospitality. And that's one of the gifts that's mentioned in Romans chapter 12, where the different gifts are listed. And certainly it's one of the gifts that God gives in the church by the Spirit that is essential for the elders in the church, that they be given to hospitality. And perhaps there's no better way for us to get to know the other members of the church than to be hospitable to them, to have them in your home. And here we have to, as it were, break out of our circles, break out of our comfort zones. There's a kind of uh, forced interaction as we come together in worship. Hospitality creates a, we might say, relaxed interaction. You find out who this person is outside of the few hours that we're together on the Lord's Day. You find out that they think, what they think, how they think, what their struggles are. There's a whole another layer, as it were, to these fellow members of the church, and that's so essential, the love and respect of one another in the church of Jesus Christ. Readily, Using our gifts includes this, that we have a sensitivity to the other members of the body. That is, that our relationships and our interactions in the church with other members are not about us, but about them. Sensitivity. A listening ear. Following up in gentle and thoughtful ways where another may need encouragement or someone to talk with, a phone call, a prayer, a card, an email, an encouraging text message. When we're consumed with ourselves, we miss all of those things. That's Hebrews chapter 10. Consider 
one another. I said, walk a mile in your brother's shoes. Be sensitive. And then follow that up with deliberate acts of kindness, help in in very practical ways. Think of a thank you, a birthday card, an encouragement, small kindnesses that can encourage people in ways that we never know, that we can never know. Life is hard. Did you think about that when you looked at another member of the church? Life is hard. Look at Scripture and you see that. Think of the struggles of Moses, of Jacob, of Joseph, of Job, of Elijah. Think of the encouragement that Jesus needed in the garden. And something as small as knowing that someone else knows, loves, and prays can be all, all the encouragement that one needs. One more practical way that we can readily use our gifts to the advantage and salvation of other members is by being accessible and available. I don't mean accessible and available in practical ways in in the life of the church, but I mean in this way, that because friendship has been developed, that member of the church will call you and trust you and talk to you. You're someone to, to turn to for support. All these things are are part of readily using our gifts for the advantage and the salvation of the other members. There's another adjective here, readily and cheerfully. Cheerfully. That describes a disposition, a mentality, a part of a character, a, a A person who is cheerful is a person who is optimistic, a person who is happy. And, in fact, this is God's will for us. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice evermore. There's the cheerfulness. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you that you rejoice always, evermore. Cheerfulness is a powerful medicine. Proverbs 17, verse 22, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. It's infectious. When we're cheerful, we give a gift to the other members of the body. It encourages. It changes our focus. It changes the attitudes of others. It It refocuses attention away from a problem. It gives a new perspective on things that we're looking at. Just think of a time when you as a parent maybe are discouraged and a little child has a way of cheering you up. And it's the person who contains cheerfulness that produces 
cheerfulness. Barnabas is called in Scripture the son of consolation. In contrast, someone who's gloomy and heavy-hearted and pessimistic is really somebody who's selfish and creates a funnel of despair in which they want to drag others down with them readily and cheerfully use my gifts. When the Scriptures speak of cheerfulness, they do this especially in connection with giving. And that's the way it's used here in the Catechism. Readily and cheerfully use my gifts. Give. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, not giving by constraint, but willingly, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And this is the way that Barnabas, the son of consolation, gave. In contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, he willingly, cheerfully gave the full price of his land. Selfishness produces a reluctance to give. So cheerfully, how do I come to this joy? Well, it's more than a fake smile, isn't it? But it comes from salvation and the joy of salvation. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And isn't this the beautiful theme of the Heidelberg Catechism? Comfort and joy. Comfort in knowing that I'm not my own. Comfort in knowing that nothing that I have is really mine. But all of it belongs to the Lord and joy in the abundance that I have so that I joyfully will also give. What gifts has God given you that can be used for the advantage and the welfare, the salvation of the other members of the church? Are you using them willingly and cheerfully? Amen. Father, we thank Thee for the beautiful truth of the communion of the saints. We understand that Christ has blessed the church with many gifts and blessed each of us as members with gifts. Help us to understand place, responsibility, gifts, needs. To be alert to these things, sensitive and ready, willing, cheerful in serving in the body. We pray it for Jesus' sake.